President Obama has said, women's issues are not just about women anymore. They're family issues, they're economic issues, they're issues of productivity and national competitiveness. They're issues that affect us all. Ambassador-at-Large for Global Women's Issues, Kathy Russell, walks the walk on the president's words every day as she travels around the world empowering girls and giving them a voice to stand out. But does the woman who gives others a voice ever have fear in her own voice? Hear about her terror of public speaking, her frustrations and successes, and the stories and women that she's met around the world that she just can't get out of her mind. Ambassador Kathy, fill us in a little bit on on the past few days at the UN. You know, I think you have this fantastic, incredible role Mm -hmm. and platform. And people sometimes don't really, outside of the Beltway, know what that means. What does it mean to be a global ambassador for women's issues at large? Mm -hmm. Global ambassador at large for women's issues. How have you used your time here? Well, the title is actually, it, it's funny because people really have no idea what it means. And, and so when I travel, it's funny because people think I'm the Minister for Women's Issues in the United States. <laughs> yes. So they're always asking questions about our domestic situation in the U.S., which is so funny to me. But really, the reason that the job exists is because we want to promote the status of women and girls around the world. That's my job. And we mm. do it on behalf of the United States for two reasons. One, because we believe it's the right thing to do. It's consistent with our values. It's the statement we want to make to the the world, that women and girls deserve these rights. But two, we know and we believe and we try to talk to countries about the fact that if they really promote women and girls in their own country, that country will be stronger, it'll be more economically uh, prosperous, and it'll be more stable. And we see that as in the interest of the United States, in our strategic interest. And so it's very much integrated into the overall work of the State Department. Here, it's interesting because all the countries come together. Mm -hmm. There's been a big... um, focus this year on the SDGs and the fact that we've looked at the goals, the Millennium Development Goals over the last 15 years. We've seen some real progress, but there's a long way to go. And so it's been a little bit of a celebration of how far we've come and then a retrenchment and and an assessment of where we are and a commitment to move forward. Uh, And I think that's been important for us. I've done a lot of work on that while I'm here. I also, it's kind of opportunistic. So I've met with Syrian women. I've met all sorts of people who are in town and you get the chance to meet with them. We also are very focused on adolescent girls. So I've done several events um, on adolescent girls, looking at girls, the importance of girls' education, how we need to address the issues of adolescent girls overall. What are your your challenges in this role? Because, again, as I've told people, I'm interviewing you, and when they hear this title, and I think they really assume you probably have a massive budget, a huge army of people. We laugh because I, I also know that's very far from the truth, and you're an incredibly lean operation that does so much. And I mean, when I first went to Sweden, I actually asked your predecessor, Milan Verveer, mm-hmm. and we sat down like this and I said, give me some advice. You know, what can you do in this kind of small space? And she said, use your power to convene. Mm-hmm. Use the, the imprimatur, the voice of America as this beacon of kind of openness and inclusion and bring people together. Mm-hmm. That's just one example, I think, of unspoken tools and and intangible tools. What kinds of tools do you leverage? Well, I think we have several several tools in our toolbox. One is, you're right, the power to convene is incredibly important. Um, just last week, we did a convening at the State Department. We actually have a series of convenings that we just started. And the first one was on early enforced marriage. 
And we, because people want to come to the State Department, we, we bring people in and they talk to us about what's happening in the field, what's working, what's not working. And that power is incredibly important. There's no question about it. The biggest thing that we're trying to get done and the most important and lasting, I think, is to integrate our work into the overall work of the State Department. So we spend a lot of time with our colleagues explaining why it's important and trying to support their efforts. So that's in the department and also in the post. So we have thousands of diplomats, as you know, around the world. They're the face of the United States. They are people who represent us, and we try to support them so that they can support women in their countries. We don't have a huge staff, that's true, but we use our staff very economically. We have some resources, and we're very careful with how we spend those. We look to partner with other countries. We look to partner with private industry. And there's so much momentum around the world, so much interest in women and girls, and so much concern about how to support them in a way that is productive and helpful to these countries that we feel like we have a lot of support. We have a lot of support at the White House. The president is committed. He uses his voice, which is the single most important voice, in my opinion, in the whole world. And when he talks about the importance of women and girls, people listen to that. Vice President, Secretary of State, we have so many people who are invested in what we're doing. So it's true that we don't have huge, huge programs, but we can influence the programs that exist and we can use our diplomatic voices in a way that's really helpful to women. Can you pinpoint something that President Obama has done that you feel has been the most transformational? I would say this. I think he consistently, he, number one, he recognizes the importance of women and girls. He, he just understands it intuitively. And he talks about it, which is incredibly important. So earlier this year, the First Lady, uh, and he did an announcement about girls' education. And when he gets up and talks about that, people pay attention, all certainly across the administration, because he's the boss, of course, so that's helpful, but also across the world, because people look to us for our moral leadership, recognizing, you know, the United States is not perfect. And, and we are the first to acknowledge it, but we have a lot of lessons to learn, lessons that we've learned and a lot of lessons that we can share with other people. Do you feel that people actually get it? And what I mean by this is, you know, living in Sweden, a very gender equal place. Um, I remember being really surprised when this election, the foreign minister of Sweden announced a feminist foreign policy mm-hmm. and a feminist, the first feminist government in the world. And... I thought this would be kind of, you know, taken on and and kind of trumpeted. And there were many blogs, including The Cable, which a lot of us foreign policy people read in. And internally, people kind of came up to us and said, what does that mean? What what is that? You know, is that a joke? And she was a bit pilloried. And I've interviewed her for this podcast Mm -hmm. as well. And and I think she was quite surprised by it to some extent. So do we really get it across the board? I mean, have you ever traveled somewhere, and you don't have to name names, but where you realize, oh, my work is much more cut out than I think. (laughs) It happens pretty much every day, honestly. I mean, there are stories and experiences, um, people that I meet, uh, people that I see who tell me things, and they truly, I cannot believe uh, things that make me just stop and think, I I don't even know what we can do about this. Horrible things that happen to women and girls everywhere around the world. That is definitely the case. You know, there are challenges that women in the United States face. I mean, we have gender-based violence in our country. We have that in every country in the world. I, I don't pretend that that's not happening. You know, the stories about what happens to women in conflict settings is 
horrifying, right? What's happening to Yazidi women now in Iraq, horrifying, and truly makes you question what, how people can treat other human beings that way. Mm. But I also see the positive side, and I see that countries are beginning to recognize that they will never be as successful as they want to be if they don't empower their women and girls. That's not to say that every person in the country accepts that, but I think at the leadership level, they're starting to understand that. And if they want to be successful, they're looking for ways to try to do that. And we are looking to support them. And I also meet the most amazing young women and experienced women around the world who really give me a lot of hope. And the young women in particular, I mean, there's a woman I met um, who's from Malawi. Her name is Memory Banda, and I talk about her a lot because I just love her. And her story is that she um, her, she has a sister who was uh, younger than she is, who the, she got married at 11. Memory resisted getting married. Her sister ended up with three children by the time she was, I think, 15. Um, Memory fought back and stayed in school. And now she's an advocate for other girls. And then when she hears about girls in her, her village who are at some risk of getting married, she gets a big group of girls and they go over and they talk to the parents and they say, don't do it. You know, this is mm-hmm. these are all the reasons that you shouldn't do it. So for me to meet someone like that, who's overcoming odds that I can never even imagine and standing up and saying, this is what is right. And this is what we need to do. And she's trying to help other people in her country do it. Gives me so much inspiration. Gives me so much hope. I mean, the obvious and great example is Malala, right? I mean, I just saw her movie, the I Am Malala movie the other night. And the the courage that that girl had at that time is truly astounding. So if she can do it, if these mm-hmm. other young women can do it, all of us surely can find a way to be helpful. I want to delve in a bit more here because I think that's this is the point of this podcast actually sharing your story sharing the stories of mm-hmm. women that have succeeded and failed because i think in the end like you not as many events as but i've i've also attended so many things mm-hmm. and heard read so many books about empowering women and sometimes it just seems like yes sponsors and mentors and quotas but it's really you know you telling me natalia it's hard to have a child and work. You have to run home right now in 15 minutes and I'm already shaking that I'm gonna miss the train, but don't give up, you know, I did it. I mean, it's that kind of storytelling. And could you share with us maybe a story in your life where you had a challenge, where you thought like many of us do, you know, I just interviewed my sister-in-law Mika, a lot of women in New York that there were days where they said, my God, you know, I haven't seen my daughter in two weeks because I've been traveling Mm -hmm. or, you know, my husband is fed up, Mm -hmm. but they didn't give up. And I think that's always the hump and nothing against people that choose a different route because it's very hard. It is hard. Look, I mean, my my story is not all that interesting, to be perfectly honest. I mean, what I did was I I worked... um, and had a fairly high-level position in in our Senate and then at the Justice Department. And when I had my daughter, my first child, I kept extending my maternity leave. And I went back to work briefly, and it was just, I I couldn't stand it, honestly, because I said, all right, I'm supposed to be home at 5, and then I get home at 10. (laughs) And so I, I... stopped working and I took then I had my second child and so I took 10 years where I didn't work at all so I know yeah it's true and for me you know that was the right choice for my Mm -hmm. family that was the right choice at the time and I am so grateful that I had that time with my kids and I um you know I wouldn't trade it for the world but believe me I had a lot of anxiety about it right because I'm like 
what am I doing with my life? I, is anyone ever going to hire me? Will I ever get a job again? I was really lucky that I, from my perspective, that I was able to do that. Many women don't have that option. And then I got hired back, you know, and I ended up working in the White House, which obviously that's, I'm not saying that everybody has that story. I was very lucky. And I was lucky because I had mentors who really looked out for me. And the person who, who, who did this for me really was the vice president who mm-hmm. I worked for before. And he said to me, you come back and I don't care. You work, you know, you want to work two hours a week. You want to work 40, whatever you want to do. You're valuable enough to me that I'm willing to make whatever accommodation. Again, I mean, that is such a gift, right? And I know that I'm one of the most fortunate people in the world to have that. And I try now in my job to do the same thing for other women, to try to support them because everyone is on their her own path and everyone has different pressures and different challenges and different opportunities at different times. And I think people just have to try to do what's best for them and try to tune out the noise because there's a lot of noise about what you should do. And if you don't, you know, it's like, come on, just give women a break. Let them try to make the best choices they can. And as a country, we need to try to support that because it's not really about women it's about families mm. right and what we're saying is we if we if we believe that the family unit is important and that we want to encourage people to have children then i think we need to do a better job of trying to support families when they do that because it's really difficult and for me you know everyone has their own challenges but what i worry about are the women who you know they if they don't show up for work they get fired right if their kid is sick either they send their kid to school sick or they don't get paid for the hours that they don't show up. And the people at that end of the spectrum, from my perspective, are the people who I'm most worried about because they they don't have the choice, right? They can't sit around and say, oh, you know, oh, should I work, should I not work? You know, I, and that's what I worry about so much because they need, they need more support. And I think women in our positions need to be more active in trying to help them. No, I mean, I think it's so valuable that you said just that because especially among American women, there is this notion that you can't off-ramp. You can't Mm -hmm. take a break. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Sweden, where I live, is the extreme. Women get a year. Men Mm -hmm. get a year. Mm -hmm. Your child is in daycare, free daycare by age two. And so I've come kind of with this huge, enormous passion that we need something like that in this country. And thank God the president and the White House and you and and all the leaders have Mm -hmm. really been... But we need to do better as a country. And I think you pointed to a really important thing is which I don't think it, I think it shouldn't just be the women. I think men should be allowed and encouraged and should take off, right? These are not, this is not about women. It's about a family. You know, why is it all about the woman's career? That's not right. And I think we need to, as a country, say we value these children and we value someone caring for them and it should be whichever family member the family decides right it's up to them to make the decision do you think that we'll we'll get there as a country because it's still i mean i believe there's a pew study that that says you know and this is not completely but around the lines that more than one third of americans feel that if you want to the best thing for a child is for the mother to stay home full time mm-hmm. And I remember when I, I was still abroad, when President Obama had this issue with the base, the baseball player that took leave and everyone kind of, be, I mean, the things that came out were horrific about him. And so I think, I don't know if you feel 
optimistic or how far away are well, we? You know, I, I feel somewhat optimistic. I mean, I think it's gotten so much better. And I think we lose sight of that. You know, that women, you know, a couple decades ago, I mean, I mean, you're, you're so much younger than I am. I'm in my 50s. My mother, I mean, forget it. That wasn't even, right? So we're in a much different situation. It has gotten better. Um, but it's not easy. And I think we have to keep at it and really push hard for just a recognition that this is important. And I think we need to... Um, value companies that that have progressive policies for women. I think the government needs to keep pushing, but it's not, at the end of the day, it's not just the government, it's a society. Now, having said that, we do see places, we normative changes, cultural changes are not easy, but they're possible. And you can look at things like smoking, right? Or, I mean, again, when I was young, even before my age, but they would, people would, you know, smoke all the time, smoke when they're pregnant. Now people understand it's not such a great idea. People would drive drunk when I was younger. And I mean, not that, I'm not saying they're criminals, but it was much more acceptable, right? There was a lot of work to change that. The Mothers Against Drunk Driving, all these things where people are like, okay, this is not culturally acceptable. The thing I point to all the time is the work that we've done on domestic violence mm -hmm. in this country where, you know, again, you know, the VP would talk about when in the olden days, you know, 25 years ago, when, you know, you, somebody's husband beats them up, they call the police and the police come and they say, hey, you know, walk it off, go walk it off. And they say to the wife, you don't really want to put your husband in jail, right? That doesn't happen anymore, right? It is now seen as a crime. So I think as a society, we can change and we can change fairly quickly, um, but there needs to be a concerted effort to do it. And I think what happens, and again, this is just my opinion, but I think with women, we tend to internalize everything. And we we just sort of think that if it if we're having trouble making this work, it's our fault, mm -hmm. right? We're not doing a good enough job. We need to be better, you know? And I trust me, I now, I mean, I have a, a daughter who just started college and I have a son who's at home. Mm -hmm. I worry constantly about my kids. And, you know, it's the first thing I think about and the last thing I think about every day. And I worry that I'm not a good enough mother, that I should be there more, that I need to be accessible to my kids. And, you know, that is that's me doing that right to myself and i think we all women just have a tendency to do that to themselves they beat themselves up so much my husband doesn't so much do that mm. right he i mean my husband's a very involved father he loves his kids but he doesn't walk around saying i'm a bad father because i'm not home right he doesn't really doesn't think about it so much that way and i think women have to give themselves a break and we have to try to support like give ourselves a little support and then support each other and then i think hopefully things will start to change how do you find that peace? No, look, I worry about it all the time. I think what I, I think generally I try to say, you know, I would want my daughter to choose what she wanted if she wanted to work. And I hope that I'm a good example for my son and my daughter mm. that you can try to do both and you don't have to be perfect. You can just, it, that, it's impossible mm -hmm. to be perfect. It's impo even if you're home and I, I was home, right, for 10 years. Even the, I, I can't pretend I was a perfect mother when I was home. No human being can do everything perfectly. You just have to try to do your best. And I think if you love your kids and if you try to make sure that they're well taken care of, your daughter's going to be fine. And your proof, right, that you're that you can mm. that if you, that's what happened in your as your when you were a child, you grew up and you're perfectly happy and <laughs> right. And so it it's fine. It really is fine. And then I think that the problem is it's all fine till it's not. And that's really what I see, that my kids do okay. And then, some, you know, when things go awry, they definitely go awry. And, you know, at that point, you just, you know, start again. But 
all you can do is do your best. And I, for kids, I really think seeing their parents doing important work, seeing their parents happy is, is, is really valuable. And I also, I think they are their own people. They will make their way in life and kids do, you know, come from much worse circumstances and do fine. And I just have to, you know, trust and pray every day that my kids end You're up okay. You're an amazing example. <laughs> well, I know that they will. I know, but I'm, you know, at the end of the day, I'm still their mother, right? Yes. So when I forget to send something to school with my son, I still forget to send They'll it They'll appreciate school. it in five <laughs> years. I think I was around 25 where I turned my narrative around. <laughs> but tell me, you have been in this role for Two and a half? Two years, Two yeah. years? Just a little over two Is years. Is there something that, a, a preconceived notion or something you thought, this is how this job is going to be two years ago, how have you shaped it? What's changed? What Have you had a moment where some travel, some something you've learned, something that's changed your perspective mm-hmm. on the women's issue? I, I would say this. When I... When I first came into it, I understood there were many issues that I was interested in working on. I was interested in working on gender-based violence, and I was very interested in um, women's economic empowerment. Almost immediately, when I started to do my travel, I realized that there was a serious problem with girls out there that we were not um, addressing as well as we needed to address. And that was a real um, eye-opener for me. And I thought, you know, there's an opportunity. The The international community, including the United States, has spent a lot of time and money getting primary kids into school. We've made real progress on that front. But as I traveled, I met adolescent girls, and they are facing real challenges in many parts of the world, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, but other parts of the world as well. They're getting pushed into marriage, they're dropping out of school, they're at higher rates of HIV, higher rates of violence. And I was shocked by that. And I think in part, I they are the same age as my kids were, mm. right? And I thought, good God, mm. you know, what is happening with these girls? Who is looking out for these girls? And so we have really um, thought long and hard about that. And we are working hard to try to keep these girls in school, which is not the easy, you know, uh, cure-all, but it's really important. Many challenges flow from that, like making sure they're in quality schools, right? That the teachers are trained and that they can get to school safely and that they have bathrooms when they're in school. It, there are a lot of pieces of this that need to get done, but understanding that these girls in particular, this cohort was facing a very unique set of challenges and that if we didn't address them, the girls would be lost, essentially, right? Their opportunities would be squelched, their educations would be truncated, and they would really never be able to participate at the levels that we hope they'd be able to participate in their societies and in their economies. So we're very focused on trying to do some work on adolescent girls. And I'm I'm hopeful that, I mean, really, all, so many of my events when I've been here this week have been on I, adolescent I girls. That. There's a lot of attention now at the international level. And I think the First Lady has been tremendously mm. valuable and helpful on this front. I mean, her voice on this is incredibly important um, mm. and really powerful and I think is going to make a huge difference to the to the work that we're doing. I know there's no silver bullet, but what really works? Because I think mm-hmm. we're all still working mm-hmm. on that. I've I follow this a little bit and, and we did that at the embassy a lot. And now it's really hard to know the exact combination. Yeah. I mean, I think school is definitely mm-hmm. like keeping them starting early and keeping them in school. But what about when they go home exactly. and they're abused or they're not exactly. allowed or their p- parents? I mean, how do you follow these things? Yeah. It must be hard for you to travel to a village in sub and then have to, to leave and not, not really know what yeah. happens to them. It, 
there is no there is no easy answer as you say i my view about this and i i, I think i'm right but we're trying to test this proposition is that what we need to do is try to address the issue in a, the most comprehensive way possible. So, for example, we, the president announced in um, July, I think, that we're going to do some more focused work in two countries. And we're start well, in a couple of countries, but we're starting in Malawi and Tanzania. The idea is that we're going to go in and try to get an assessment of what's happening with women and girls and then bring as much sort of effort to bear as we can on the part of the United States. So it's the State Department and USAID are working together mm -hmm. on this. We're working with PEPFAR um, and to try to see if we can if we can move the needle by addressing things like making sure the laws are in good shape, making sure police prosecutors are trained in the law, making sure that women have adequate, women and girls have adequate health care, making sure that girls are in school, that we're addressing issues like gender-based violence and that we're providing economic opportunities for the women. So. I mean, I always think about it from my own perspective, from your perspective, women, they're not just one thing, right? So we can't, going in and saying, okay, we're going to address gender-based violence. All right, that may that may may make a difference. It may help a little bit, but it, it doesn't address the fact that a woman has a whole lot of pieces of her life, right? And you, she, then she has to go home and try to, you know, take care of her family, or she has to see if she can get her kids into school, or, you know, she doesn't have adequate health care. So the fact that we're saying, well, we're going to throw your husband in jail doesn't really answer the problem. We need to try to address the issue in a comprehensive way. I think if we do it, we're going to see much more progress. And if we do the in issues in an individual way, and so we'll see, I mean, we're starting, we're getting started now. And I think we're going to have, a, I think we're going to have something to really compare this to because it's not the way we have typically done our work. It's been more, um, you know, country will come to us and say, well, you know, our post will say, we want to do this program on women's economic empowerment. Like, okay, well now, even now we started to say, make sure you have an, um, a gender-based violence component of that, right? Because mm -hmm. these, all of these issues are related to each other. You have about a year left. Mm -hmm. what? Don't remind me. I know, I know. I know. So, I know. You're doing a lot. <laughs> well, we're doing a lot, but I'll tell you, the, the key to the to the going forward is we are trying to make sure that our issues are integrated as much as possible mm -hmm. in the department. And honestly, the, the people who work at the State Department, I, for the most part, recognize how important this is, and they're trying to incorporate these issues into their work. Um, that, I think, will be the most lasting um, work that we can do because it will be fully um, operational going mm. forward and it won't depend on who the secretary is or who the president is. It'll be irrelevant that this work, because people will see the value in it. And my theory is that people always do things, not always, almost always do things in their own self-interest, right? So if it's yes. making their work more successful, great, then I think they're going to embrace it and continue to do it. So is that what your definition of success will be? As you leave that last day, mm -hmm. What will you want to have accomplished? I will want this issue to be as routine as anything else that people do at the State Department. And I will want I, I want us to be in a position where we can point to success stories around the world that show that empowering girls works, it's important, it's valuable, and that empowering women will ultimately make these societies stronger and more stable and that that success will breed more success. Do you ever get irritated when people still view it as a soft issue or a, I mean, I've been told this is not a foreign policy issue, <laughs> even with Hillary Clinton as secretary That's of state funny. or, you know, John Kerry has also yeah. done a fantastic job. Yeah. 
You know, it's not so much my personality to get irritated. I just kind of oh, keep this is at why it. You're- <laughs> yeah, this- I, I, I do. Tell. I just keep at it. And I feel like, you know, we, I, I, I believe, I absolutely believe in my heart that this is the right thing to do. And I think that it's going to help women and girls around the world. And I, almost don't have time to be irritated. I just have to, you know, I have to think about these girls. And, and it's funny because in the beginning, I used to hate to have to make speeches. And I would just say to myself, okay, I would try to picture a girl who was up there. And I'd be like, okay, just do it. You're just trying to give voice to her. It's not about you. You know, people aren't looking at you. They're just, they're listening to what you say. And I would say, okay, I'm just speaking for her. I'm speaking mm-hmm. for all these women who can't speak for themselves. All these girls who may never get the chance to use their voice if we don't try to support them. So that's really how I approach the job. And I just, you know keep plugging away and I feel I definitely feel the pressure of the end coming that we have to try to you know get as much done as we can before then and the time flies by because we're so busy do you think you'll continue with gender empowerment equality work after this is your passion this is you've been doing it in work yeah your career because I I they, you know, they, these women and these girls need need the help, and I think we have some expertise. I am developing some, but it's not me. It's part of a, so much of a broader effort, and to the extent that I can support that, that's what I'd like to do. This show is called Stand Out, and I always ask every interviewee, how do you stand out? Well, I think I stand out because... I'm doing something I care about, and I think about those women and girls when I do my work. That's it. It's it's truly, and I'm not I'm not being falsely modest. It's it's really not about me. It's about the work, and it's about trying to help support these women and girls so that they can they can be everything they want to be. I've had every opportunity that I could ever ask for. I want others to have opportunities as well. And when I meet some of these women and really the girls in particular who have nothing, but even in the face of nothing, believe that they have a right to some sort of future, I want us to be a part of that. And so for me, that's just a huge privilege. And it makes me feel like, you know, I'm willing to do anything anywhere to try to, to promote that because I think it's that important. My second question is usually, how do you stand up? And I think it's quite obvious throughout this whole interview how you stand up for other women. So maybe we can take it in. How do you stand up when you've fallen? Mm-hmm. How do you overcome challenge personally? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, for me personally, I I just try to think about, you know, my parents, what they mm-hmm. taught me, you know, that you need to, to be the do the best that work that you can do. Be the best person you can be. I fall short of that more times than I want to think about. But I just, you know, I feel like life is short. I feel that more and more as I get older. And I, you know, I want to make my life valuable to somebody beyond myself. I'd like it to be of some use to people. And so that's how I just sort of keep at it. And yeah, things don't always go my way. Things don't always go anybody's way, you know, and that's, that's a realization that I didn't really have when I was young. Sometimes I look around and I think, oh, she has everything going for her. or He has, you know, perfect or this. And it's like, no one has that. Everyone is struggling to do their best. And you just have to try to give people a little bit of a break, give yourself a break and just keep at it. This podcast is a collaboration with Doggins Industry and ACAST. Produced by Henrik Janssen and ACAST with Sandra Moline as supervising producer and Carl Rosander as executive producer. 